Welcome to the Freedom Fridays Project podcast. I'm Pete Clark, your host, The Whispers Guy. It appears that work expands to the time that we give it, and I started to explore how I was investing my time and effort, particularly on Fridays. It's evolved to an explanation and experiment with time, energy, attention and identity, and a mindset shift from I have to to I choose to. So if you're interested in exploring some changes to the way that you invest your time and your energy, if you'd like some tips on the way as you make some changes perhaps to your identity, if you would like the freedom of I choose to, away from I have to, then this is the podcast for you. So welcome to the Freedom Fridays Project podcast. So welcome to this week's episode of the Freedom Friday podcast, where I have a a very special guest who's got uh, almost an unbelievable story. Um, he's now a mate and a family friend and our families play together and dinner together. Uh, and so, first of all, please welcome Tom. Thanks, Pete. Good to be How here. How are you? Yeah, good, mate. Looking forward to it. Good. Um, so, Tom, <laughs> I start these uh, with the same question. Uh, people who tune in to Freedom Fridays know it's about ordinary people having done extraordinary things, moving from I have to to I choose to, bringing more life to your years. Uh, what's the big change people have gone through that might be instructive for other people going through? So that's that's the starting question, Tom. What's the big change or one of the many big changes that you've gone through? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, the, the change I choose for, uh, for, for this one, Pete, is probably the, uh, the, the, the change from being a, a, a boy on the farm riding motorbikes through to being... Uh, um, an, an Air Force pilot flying over the skies of Iraq in 2003. <laughs> so let me let me just clarify. You've gone from farm boy to fighter pilot. Yeah, and it, it, okay, the, that's the, a story and a half. <laughs> so, so the, the span, I guess, uh, from when I left school at the end of 1990 to being over Iraq in 2003, there's, there's 13 years in there. But I guess the, the journey to actually being a fighter pilot is, is generally around about seven years or so uh, for those who go through you know, the Defence Academy and get a degree. So that was probably where the, where well, I was going to say where the curve, learning curve was steepest, but it actually didn't yeah. slow down for the next six either. So okay. <laughs> it, was, it was all a lot of learning to be honest somewhat quite hard about which i'm going to pick up in a second so the, the farm boy part what, what what piques the interest of a farm boy to become a fighter pilot good, good question i um i grew up on a farm lo- loving to ride motorbikes fast and my, my parents vetoed my first chosen career of racing motorbikes that one that one didn't last more than about two dinner conversations <laughs> you go in the sky yeah, and, and, and my second choice of playing tennis for a living you know, lasted about four dinner conversations before that was done. I would have been one of those guys living out of his car and, uh, and not going anywhere, I think. I was never never quite that good. So, you know, I, I knew I wanted to do something a little bit different. Dad had always taken us to, to air shows. I'd, I'd grown up, you know, loving aircraft, had a, a bookshelf of uh, aircraft books and had memorised all the fighter aircraft from, from years gone by and... Uh, and I knew going through school, I didn't want a, an ordinary job, inverted commas. So uh, I thought joining the Air Force sounded like quite a lot of fun. Uh, I didn't know what I was getting into. And uh, right. you know, in year 11, when I went for a scholarship um, for year 12, I got, I, got, I got hammered. I knew nothing. 
sent back to have a good look at myself and do a bit of learning before I fronted up in year 12 to actually try and try and get into the Air Force for real. And were you joining the Air Force or were you becoming a fighter pilot? Uh, joining the Air Force as a, a general duties officer. Um, so that to the, the journey from actually getting in, in there with, um, to being a fighter pilot, there was still plenty of opportunities to, uh, to fall out of that out of that process. But you joined, we're, we're done our pilot testing, uh, all the aptitude testing, the coordination testing, the psych testing. So we, we, we joined, you know, knowing that we, if we passed every, every stage, then we would end up being pilots. And then obviously some of us would then get to be fighter pilots, but, um, but we joined, you know, just on the, on the promise, wow. having done all the testing. And, and is anyone that joins the Air Force, is that their ultimate dream? Uh, for, for some of us, yes. I mean, uh, the Air Force, or our, our um, year at the academy took in navigators, air traffic controllers, supply officers, um, uh, in, intelligence officers, administration officers. So, but, but for 50 of us that, that joined the academy in 1991, um, we, were, um, we wanted to be pilots and, and we knew that, you know, the path ahead of us to get there. Okay. And of the, of the thousand people that might join the Air Force to become a fighter pilot, how many make it? Well, I, I understand later on from the work I did in recruiting that for our year of 50 that got into the academy, there was 5,000 applicants. So I think that but, wow. uh, realistically, possibly only 1,000 that, you know, even passed the academic qualifications, but 5,000 that applied, let's say. 33 of us made it out of the academy. Um, Wow. Uh, and went on to pilot training. Uh, 22 of us graduated from pilot's course with our wings. Uh, six of us were selected for fast jet training, um, initially on the old Mackie jet trainer that then got replaced by the Hawks. And then uh, two of us finally made it through to, uh, to F-18s. Two out of 5,000. Yeah. <laughs> nearly, nearly one. <laughs> 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 and uh, what, so what, what fascinates me about that, Tom, and I know, I, and I'm not asking you because I don't, I, I know you pretty well, you wouldn't want to do this, you wouldn't want to talk about yourself. But why you? Why were you one of the two out of 5,000? What differentiates you that the other 4,990 didn't have? Uh, well, it, there's certainly uh, a, a huge element of uh, luck and circumstance in the last in the last couple of years, right, from, from pilot training. I'd say up to pilot training, um, you know, plenty, plenty of people were still in the, in the race at, the, at that stage. You know, and those that didn't make it through the academy sort of realised the Air Force wasn't for them or, you know, couldn't deal with the demands of the academic and, and military training at the same time. It's just more like a full-on full on university, really, if I was to describe it like that. Yeah. But really, once, once you get to pilot training, it seems like a long way from from your first your first flight to wings. You know, when you're sitting there, you're not used to wearing an oxygen mask. You're not used to the, the learning curve. You're not used to the assessment criteria. The fairly blunt feedback on every flight. The you know the necessity to learn every flight from what you did wrong last time because you could only get it wrong again so many times before that was done. Right. So part of right. it we, we used to say that 
um, when I became a flying instructor later on that, you know, anyone can pass pilot's course if given enough time, right. but it's, the, it's the, the steepness of the learning curve and the ability to learn quickly that is as important as actually getting to the required skill level at the end. So and, your focus uh, on, you know, the learning aspect, you know, what did you do well? What did you learn? What are you going to change for next time? That was forensic and relentless. Absolutely. And look, I thought it, I thought it was tough on pilots course, but once you got onto fighters, it, it you know, it, it multiplied uh, again, right. I think, in, in the intensity because the, the, the requirements, the speeds, the system management, the complexity of the missions multiplies as well. So what's expected of you yeah. also multiplies. So, but, uh, you know. And, Which is, as a member of the public, that's quite reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> there's not a low barrier to entry. No, no, the, uh, <laughs> the, the bar seemed quite high, although, you know, sometimes later on, even after I got through it, it's like, geez, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, always felt like I, you know, being pushed, you know, right to the edge and sort of scrambling to, to yeah. keep their head above water. You know, others, others did it a bit easier, but certainly I, uh, right, you know, always found that the Air Force was pushing, pushing, pushing. You know, if it wasn't passing a course, it was then how do you become a, a lead of two aircraft? Once you've done that, how do you become a lead of four aircraft? Then how do you lead a large force? Right. And then how do you go and teach other people the same thing? And then how do you take that into a multinational environment? And, you know, the learning curve didn't stop. So uh, it's a speculative question here. Do you think you were born with that willingness to be pushed? Or did that experience build that muscle in you? Good, good question. I think it's, I think it's a bit of both. Um, I've right. always been very competitive, um, sport, yep. sport wise. Um, and my parents never actually pushed me. They always noted that, you know, I seemed to have an internal you drive. Do it yourself. That, yeah, that, 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 that's right. Um, so, you know, it, it, it is really, I, I guess I took to flying like it was another competitive sport, not that I was competing against anybody else. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, because that's a really bad way to work to to work together as a course where you're all helping each other to get your wings and to get through you know what's a fairly challenging um, set of circumstances. But certainly competitive within myself to do better each time to take on the feedback to to make sure that I addressed what was going on and and, and did better next time. I think that that's partly innate, but is certainly drilled drilled in as you know it, it's a requirement for success you, you're not going to be a fighter pilot unless you have that yeah and what part of your farm boy existence you know you've got farm boy identity helped or hindered your way through that's a really good question um later on after i'd been a fighter pilot for a few years i did some work with uh, air force recruiting and at that stage that they had a uh, I guess a theme going that they were looking for left-handed farm boys, um, you know, because apparently they were going to make good fighter pilots. And part of the rationale behind that, I think, you know, right? there was a, there, yeah, there was a bit of the left brain, right brain thing going on there. But I think uh, okay. on, the, on, on the farm, on, that was the left-handed thing, I think. Yeah. But but um, but on the other side, I think they looked at farm boys who are used to being reasonably, and and girls, farm boys and girls, as being more, I guess resilient autonomous you know yeah. able to just get on and get stuff done don't require a lot of um you know, attention i i guess and would just you know 
more absorbent potentially than others. But I'm not actually sure whether that was the case. I think it was a fine theory from some psychologists. But when I looked around the squadron, you know, I was the only left-handed farm boy there. And by the way, I certainly was far from being the best. I was probably the worst pilot in the squadron. So, it, <laughs> so it's like I'm not sure if we're looking for the right things here, guys. But uh, but I think you know, that that background, you know, certainly being comfortable with machinery and having operated cars, motorbikes, and tractors right. since I could you know look over the windscreen was uh, was certainly helpful. I think in understanding and operating machinery. And how many times through that journey? Uh, maybe even out loud, did you say to yourself, I'm done. I've had enough. I can't. This is a too far. Well, there was certainly plenty of times when I came back from a flight and I went, okay, failed that one. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> did not pass that flight. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, you can recognize some of, you know, some of the things you might do to actually get to that stage. But I, I, I never actually counted myself out of, of, of failing the course, right? It's like, okay, um, okay. there was a few flights I thought I'd failed where I actually just got given a, a marginal score instead, you know, by the skin of my teeth, because I think they, you know, they saw enough that maybe what, what should have been catastrophic for the flight wasn't. Um, but I, then, you know, there were a couple of times probably on um, when I was flying F-18s where I thought, this is so hard. You know, there's aircraft flying around everywhere. And I, I do not know what to do in this circumstance. <laughs> and that was pretty obvious to the instructor, I think. And so you just go, how the hell am I going to get this? You know, I understand the theory. I understand the brief on where I'm supposed to be going, what I'm doing. But it is just so hard to comprehend when you're airborne. So, you know, there's probably a couple of times there. It's like, well, you know, you just got to, you know, each night you, you take the feedback, you know, right, I've got to focus on these three things tomorrow that I screwed up today. And, uh, you know, if I do those, maybe they'll let me go through if I, if I deal with the big issues that I had yesterday. And there might be some other issues, but as long as I deal with the ones that are yesterday, maybe they'll give me another chance. And, you know, they did, which I was pretty lucky. Yeah, I can't, I can't even begin to imagine what that is like dealing with the chaos and complexity that you had to deal with in a multi-billion dollar piece of government kit <laughs> flying at X number of hundred miles, kilometers an hour, and you've never done it before. That is just the ultimate in working in a VUCA environment. Yeah, you know, it, it, it really is. And you know, I will say they paid multi-billion dollar. It's probably a 40 million US dollar aircraft. The Joint okay. Strike Fighter, the F-35 uh, is a lot more expensive, but, okay, uh, right. but it's still you know, $40,000 an hour of, of, of wow. um, taxpayers' money that you're burning on the training as well, which is why, you know, I think partially we take it so seriously to get the most out of every hour. But but that VUCA environment, I guess, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, people think of the military as being quite regimented and we do do a lot of drills and we do repetitive training and we train and we train and we train. Um, and, but it's actually that structure that enables you to make order out of chaos in a, in a VUCA environment. So yep. when, you know, having never been in, you know, uh, the Middle East uh, before in, in, in thunderstorms and going over um, you know, into en enemy territory and having to find tankers in bad weather and sandstorms and chaos on the ground, it's, it's actually that training that actually gives you that capability to operate in a chaotic environment it yeah. actually gives you flexibility because you train for options and you have yep. you have 
yeah, you have choices. Um, we're, we're recording this in Australia, and on the telly at the moment, there's, uh, you know, it's an entertainment show, really, SAS Australia, where they take celebrities through <laughs> a supposed SAS training camp, which I'm interested, I love the psychology of it. I'm going to guess that most people's only experience of fighter pilots would be Top Gun. Yeah, that's pretty disappointing. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> yeah. Um, based on the actual experience, what percentage is the real experience versus what we might know of Top Gun? Uh, well, I'm, I hope Top Gun 2 does a better job of... Uh, <laughs> of displaying what happens and i hear it does by the way from right you know, closer closer to the movie than i i think they've they've got a little bit more realism in it this time and okay. uh, but there's certainly yeah the tactics oh, there's a lot of rubbish in there <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> I, i'm making, I'm making no connection but i'm making no <laughs> connection between tom cruise and tom gleason here at all <laughs> <laughs> definitely not <laughs> a few personality differences there <laughs> yeah um and, you know, that was a long time ago. Um, people, I think, who've gone through quite extreme experiences like that, there's a blessing and a curse as they come out. What's, if you wouldn't mind sharing, what's been the blessing of that for you post-03? And yet, what's the curse? Well, so I, I think um, the, the, the blessing is that people... Um, the blessing is that people have assumptions about what you're like because of what you've done. And the curse yep. is people have assumptions about what you're like um, <laughs> because of what you've done. Right. And, and the, the, the blessing is that people understand that you, you, you can learn fast, you operate, <clears throat> pardon me, in a stressful environment. You know, you, you've led, led people, you can work in teams, you can solve complex problems. And, and, and that's fantastic. And also, you know, to be honest, it, it, it having that on the CV does actually, you know, provide a point of differentiation in, in, in mm. a pile of, uh, of resumes. Mm. I think um, uh, the curse side, I, I certainly found on, on the NBA there, <laughs> I had a few people that assumed that I would be a, a stereotypical, I don't, I don't know, a sergeant, more of a sergeant major type, I think, you know, shouting and screaming and being inflexible and yelling at people and telling them what to do and, that that took a that took a little bit. That, of, that's just with your kids. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, look, I, what else about you know what, what's what's the curse? I think are there, are there like, any uh, maybe some uh, maybe a different question? Are there any maxims that you used to have to live by as a fighter pilot that you still do or don't anymore? Um. The seven P's is something that I uh, I still use and, um, and and talk to all my T's uh, to all my teams about rather and that and the seven P's are you know, prior preparation and planning prevents piss poor performance. Right? There's a if you, if if you walk into uh, an environment a, a a mission where you haven't thought about what might happen you haven't got you know contingencies you don't know who's going what and what the you know what where the accountabilities and the roles and responsibilities are then you know you know you can expect some trouble on those fronts so you know being being uh, being prepared is uh, is certainly very helpful you've got to do the work 
you got to you you got to do the work. It doesn't matter what it is. I, and I think also you know the um, plan, brief, execute, debrief. You know this this has yep. been codified by you know, a company yep. called Afterburner. Right, yep. it's a flawless execution cycle. And yep. teams are into this cycle, and and it's part part to do with the seven P's. Right, that's that's the first part. Yeah. But then, but then, before you actually go into a whether it be a client meeting, whether it be a pitch of some sort, you know, brief everyone in. If you've got four people in there, here's the roles you're going to play. Reminder: here's what we're doing. Here's what a successful outcome looks like. Right? Brief everyone in just before you go into the meeting, and then you know, execute the meeting per the per the plan. And then at the end, what did we learn out of that? What went well? What didn't go well? You know, how are we going to take that away and make sure that others do and we do a better job next time? You know, it, it's that type of continual learning that I think is you know, applicable anywhere. And it seems like, you know, the corporates that you and I both work with, we try and overcomplicate things despite wanting to simplify. And yet what I've just heard you say is that's the flawless execution of the simple, simple things. Absolutely. Trying, trying to make things simpler um, is, is always, you know, a good idea. You know, we, you know, and, and, you know, to be honest, sometimes, you know, fighter pilots did an awful job of that, you know, debriefing a, a junior pilot on, on, you know, a particular dogfighting mission that lasted 40 minutes and debriefing for three or four hours, you know, in hindsight, probably wasn't that helpful. It was thorough, certainly. But, you know, if, you know, realistic limitations of any human being who's taken away maybe three to five major points um, to sort out for the next mission, not 45. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, Tom, I'm conscious of your time. I know you've got a deadline. So uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing that story. I'm going to finish with a couple of uh, either or questions for you that might catch you on the hop a little bit. So um, are you a sunrise or a sunset guy? Sunrise. Your favorite Top Gun character? Um, Viper. Your least favorite Top Gun character? Slider. <laughs> Slider, you stink. Uh, uh, something you wish you'd knew, you wish you knew when you were younger? Empathy. And a book that's changed your life. Team of Teams. Tom, thank you so much. Thanks, Pete.